I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jay Wellens, is a professor in the departments of neurological surgery, pediatrics, plastic surgery, radiology, and radiological sciences at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and University. He is chief of the division of pediatric neurosurgery and vice chair of the departments of neurological surgery and the section of surgical sciences. He also co-founded and directs SOCS, the Surgical Outcomes Center for Kids. He has over 250 published scientific and medical articles on all aspects of pediatric neurosurgery and is a recognized national lecturer and expert in fetal neurosurgery, the Chiari malformations, brachial plexus surgery, surgical clinical outcomes research, and healthcare disparity. Dr. Wellens lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Melissa, also a physician, two teenage children, Jack and Fair, and dog Watney. Recently published is his first book, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience, which is the subject of today's interview. So Dr. Wellens, Jay, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. I'm honored to be here. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to be on Delving In. Well, I want to add a little bit more to your bio that I think that's quite relevant to the multidimensional aspects of your beautifully written, highly informative, poignant, and inspiring book. <laughs> One is that as an undergraduate, you majored in English, which is quite unusual for pre-med students, most of whom don't usually have the time to read novels as they're trying to get all A's in their demanding science and calculus classes. So already you were demonstrating your commitment to the humanities and to understanding subjective human experience, including suffering. You also absorbed the value of storytelling and in your very first book, Mastered the Art of It. So I congratulate you. Well, thank you, Stuart. That's very kind. I, I appreciate that very much. And your other unexpected credential, in addition to all your medical training, is that after, I think it was after you became a physician, you earned a master's of science in public health and clinical research, specializing in epidemiology. Yes. So in, so in addition to your background in identifying with and relating to profound human experiences, you also fully appreciate and have committed yourself to empirical investigation and contribution to empirical science. So it's quite a combination of attributes, interests, I mean, it's really, really something. I, I mean, I've heard it recommended that, that doctors should take some English classes, you know, and steep themselves in humanities, and here you, you majored in it. So really quite, quite an amazing, and I, I would think that this is a kind of a full circle for you, you know, to tie all these things together. It is, it is. One of the, uh, one of the three English professors that I mentioned at the, in the acknowledgments of the book, I, uh, I actually just signed a copy and sent it to him and said, it took me 30 years, but I finally wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, not bad. So in your book, you said, as I think back to the 150-hour work weeks, I mentioned that's during your surgical residency, yeah. uh, the endless series of decision asked of us, the confrontation and anger gradually replacing the compassion and care for our colleagues. It is clear to me that all of us as neurosurgery residents lived in that place back then. So, so my, my question is, how do you do it all? <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems like I'm 150 hours. I did the math and it's, what's that, three hours of sleep <laughs> per day? You know, back then, you know, nowadays they have uh, work hour limitations on trainees. Of 80. Of 80. But back then, you just, you stayed and stayed and stayed. We were called residents because we were residents of the hospital. That's how the term came around. So it, it, was, uh, it was a lot of hours and a lot of missed sleep. Yeah, and hopefully you sleep in between and not during, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, I definitely can remember times 
the rare time like having dinner with my wife, falling asleep with food in my mouth. You know, that's just wow. crazy to think about. But that's that's kind of where we were. You just live on adrenaline and coffee. A lot of coffee. A lot of right. coffee. Like yeah. intravenous IV coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so earlier I described your book as multidimensional. Uh, and in the front and center are the many stories of patients you saved and, and a few of those you couldn't save. And, and you go into informative and graphic detail, but not gratuitously, about the causes and remedies of massive brain bleeds, for instance. And it's edge of your seat, hard in one's mouth, hold one's breath reading, I found. And it's really compelling reading. And, and added to this dimension are the inspiring stories of the relationships you build with your young patients and their, and their parents in crisis moments like none other in their lives. And, and reading your book serves as a, as a powerful reminder, I think, of what's really important, what really matters. And finally, through your, throughout your book, you tell of the powerfully inspiring relationship you had with your own father, a military pilot, I guess the Air National Guard, who died of ALS, just as you were in the thick of your early medical training. That's right. And I'm hoping that we can touch on all those different aspects of your book. We have a whole hour, so maybe we can. Yeah, I'd love to. So let's keep those in mind and, and touch on them as they come up. And let's start with this. I imagine you learned from your parents, especially your father, you don't talk as much about your mother, in, which was reinforced in medical school, that you need to be ready at any moment to put your own needs aside and tend to what's important and what's, in, what's urgent. I mean, what is it like to live that way? I, mean, I can imagine it's invigorating but exhausting to live life so frequently at such a fever pitch, such a heightened level of reality. I mean, and then how do you replenish? So how do you do it and how do you replenish? Well, that's a terrific question. I think everybody in medicine is asking themselves that question right now, Stuart. You know, I think, um, you know, neurosurgery is an intense life and lots of areas of surgery are intense lives and of medicine. I would say that um, for the last couple of, you know, two and a half years, it's almost like with the pandemic, you know, all of medicine and a lot of society has been living at that kind of fever pitch. And so there is a big discussion ongoing now about how to replenish. That's a kind of a perfect word that you used uh, to talk about it. Back when I was a resident, there was not really an option. Uh, you just get, you worked in, until you, until you didn't. And then all of a sudden you were done and then you had a job and the hours are not the same. They're, they're, they're much better in terms of the work week, but the work is still very intense and having discussions with families, you know, oftentimes it's the worst day of the parents' lives when you're having that discussion about their child having a brain tumor or a blood vessel malformation that's bled or some spinal cord injury. And, uh, you know, it's the conversation that, you know, no parent really wants to have. Fortunately, having a couple of decades under me and working with terrific people that I work with locally and then, you know, pediatric neurosurgery is a small group of about 250 of us across North America. So we all get along pretty well and we communicate with each other pretty well. But, you know, you kind of learn over time that in the patients that you can intervene on, it kind of turns from this conversation that nobody wants to have to this really profound community that really rallies around uh, people and children and parents in this kind of very difficult time. Some of it is pattern recognition. Some of it is recognizing that, okay, if we get this person to the OR in this period of time and do this procedure, then we would expect that person to begin the process of improving. That's when we can intervene. And 
you know, obviously that's not every time and not every time works out perfectly. But you do get a sense that maybe you're part of a larger process and your role is to help steward people along the path to healing. And sometimes that healing is physical healing of the child. And sometimes, and this is kind of a, you know, a deeper point and a more difficult point to make, but sometimes that healing is of the parents when their child is, is, is not going to make it. And the best you can do is try to help shepherd them to a place down the line where they feel like that they've been informed and made the best decisions they can make and they can come to terms with it when they look back at it in retrospection. You know, and then lastly, I'll say in terms of what I do to reinvigorate is spend time with my family. You know, I'm fortunate to have friends both inside and outside the medical world, uh, some within the creative arts and some outside the creative arts. I try to spend a lot of time outside. I find that has a lot of of grace and reinvigoration for me. I love um, hiking and canoeing and, and spending time with my kids and my family. And then also for me, I'm, I'm fortunate to uh, kind of say I'm homozygous for the God gene. You know, I, I think I have a, a theological construct that helps me move through the day, as I move through the week. Yeah, so if you don't mind, let me just belabor this just a little bit more. And that's, you know, that's sort of the the kind of attitude that has to be cultivated to do the kind of work you do. And, and it seems to me that's maybe a little bit in common with being in the military or being trained by the military in, in the positive sense, in the, in the sense that you, you have to learn to put your own ego aside, your own fears aside, your own desire for rest aside. I mean, just putting the task at hand as absolutely paramount and no hesitation, it really comes across very clearly in your book. There was one particular passage where you talked about your first month in practice and you were telling your senior partner that you, you had just finished a surgery that may have rendered a young girl aphasic, uh, unable to speak. And he just replied, welcome to the big leagues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember sitting in his office with my head in my hands. Yeah, it's, it's intense. There's no doubt about it. I think it's so important to have people around you that you can trust and you can lean on. I mentioned having good partners, but you know, we're, there's four of us in this group. We have a wonderful nurse practitioner partner and we rely on each other. You know, I know that when I'm not on call, my partners have my patients backs and vice versa. When I'm on call, I do. And that's really important to allow people to take a break and be with their family or go on that hike that's outside of 30 minutes away from a hospital, knowing that their, that their people are taken care of. Yeah. The the other aspect of this is you have to be a master of and one the psychology is called compartmentalization. Absolutely. So you can be talking with the child's parents one moment and commiserating with them and feeling total empathy for them. And then the next second, well, or minute, you're in the OR working on their child's brain. Yeah. And everything else has to disappear. Yeah. And it's impossible, I've found, to, to take a brain tumor out of a six-year-old girl and then go home uh, to eat a late dinner with your own six-year-old daughter. You know, it's impossible to not have a sense of empathy and commonality and compassion uh, to that family, you know, and feel like that your job is to help shepherd that child, get that brain tumor out, keep them as neurologically intact as possible, give them a cleanest, just kind of be, do your job, do your part of their healing. I think that's really important. 
So is that something you got better at over the years to being able to leave work at work? Yeah, it's hard to say that. I mean, I still have some nights I can't go to bed or nights I get up early in the morning. But I know that I can't imagine doing this by myself. I can't imagine not having good people around me who I trust. It would be incredibly difficult. So I think it's a team sport. I think it's about cultivating a way of thinking in your group that allows people to have compassion, but move through the day, be able to joke a little bit when it's okay to joke, be able to talk about hard things when it's time to talk about hard things, but really just be about the business of healing and moving people through and doing, we're surgeons, we do like to operate. If we see something that we think we can help heal, you know, you know I don't want to violate HIPAA, but last week, you know, a child comes in with a brain bleed and we're able to get him to the OR and, and take out the vascular malformation. And he wakes up and says his name and wiggles his hands and his scan is clean and he's going to move back into a normal life. I mean, that's a, that's a very empowering and enriching existence to be able to help people like that. You really have to hold on to those moments tightly. I think that would be absolutely thrilling. It is. I love my orthopedic colleagues. I have a ton of friends that are orthopedics. I myself have had orthopedic surgery. I rely on them. They have taken care of my children. And that's a decision that they went into to take a child that teenager playing soccer that injured their ACL that gets an ACL repair and they're able to go back and play soccer. That's just 80% of what we do in pediatric neurosurgery is taking somebody over the edge or about to go over the edge and bringing them back in as much as we can. And there are certainly things that are similar to the ACL tear, but there is a degree of life and death and that we, that we do that just makes it a very intense life to be lived. So how, how does it feel when you hear people using the metaphor saying, by saying, well, it isn't brain surgery? <laughs> There's a great BBC skit. If you, if you Google, if you uh, web search brain surgery and rocket science, BBC, there's hilarious skit that comes up where it's a, a person, a brain surgeon at a party who cannot help but tell everybody that he's a brain surgeon. You know, what do you do? <laughs> brain surgeon! You know, it's, it's so obnoxious. And I won't give it away, but at the end, it's just incredibly funny. But anybody that sees that, it's just so funny. And so, yeah, definitely... The whole idea about it's not brain surgery. Well, it is, except it is brain surgery. <laughs> so we unfortunately we won't have time to talk about even the major categories of the surgeries you describe in your book, that, you know, dozens and dozens of poignant cases. But let's hear about two of the most amazing to me, at least. And the first was that you became a specialist in surgery on a fetus to repair a myelomenga seal. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah. Right, a, a maldeveloped uh, spinal cord that otherwise would lead to spinal bifida. So tell us more about this defect and also about the first time you prepared for and did this kind of surgery. Well, you know, the background on fetal surgery for spinal bifida is pretty interesting. You know, typically it's a, it's a defect of um, folic acid. That's why we put folic acid in our bread and other food. It's called enriching food. It's so that women of childbearing age who may or may not know they're pregnant early on will have the ability to, to form the fetus normally. Right. And, and that's been the case for, what, 50 years? Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. And fully enriching food has been 
tremendous in reducing the incidence of spina bifida. But what happens is as after conception, pretty quickly, by the 23rd and 25th day, these cells roll up into a tube. And then after that tube rolls up, that becomes the brain and spinal cord. And then everything else basically forms around it. Well, if the top part of that tube doesn't form, that's called anencephaly. And typically the body will just expel that, that um, not all the time, but most of the time. But if the bottom part of the spinal cord doesn't roll up, then even though the rest of the body forms around it, that spinal cord is actually fused to the skin. It's exposed to the outside. And that means that the legs don't work, the feet don't work, the bowel and bladder function isn't normal. And oftentimes the child develops something called hydrocephalus, which is where spinal fluid backs up inside the brain and causes pressure. And so, you know, we've known for a long time that, you know, that needs to be repaired within the first two or three days after surgery. And then oftentimes the child may need to have a, a shunt put in, which is a tube that diverts spinal fluid. Well, about 20 years ago, different pockets were doing this work. And it was a group of pediatricians, neonatologists who said, we need to study this because, you know, before it just, everybody does it, we need to make sure that, that it works and that we need to make note that these children are being born a little earlier than typical. And so a large study was done by the NIH. It was around $25 million. And basically the study was halted. And you say to yourself, aha, it was halted. It was a problem. There were complications. And it turns out it was halted because it was so positive. Yeah, that's the other reason for halting a study. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was so positive that even if they hadn't had the benefit of surgery for every single patient after that look-in, it would have been unethical to not halt it because the, the study was so positive. So the bottom line is fetal surgery, when compared against what's called postnatal surgery, just made a tremendous difference in terms of development of hydrocephalus and function too. Because it, it's still being formed. You're sort of diverting it back into its correct path, it sounds like. Yeah, what happens is you, you're basically separating the spinal cord from the surrounding skin and you're letting it drop into its normal position and then you're covering that defect with um, dura or a patch and then you're putting skin over it and that, that keeps that um, irritation from the amniotic fluid which is becoming more caustic over time that that helps reduce the inflammation which helps reduce the incidence of hydrocephalus and theoretically in what's thought to improve function that's the background and part of it Part of one of the major centers was here, a guy named Noel Tulipan. And so when I arrived here 10 years ago, I had had 10 years of practice under my belt down in Birmingham. And I had done, you know, hundreds of postnatal closures. But the opportunity to come and work with somebody who had done probably the most, I used to say Noel had done the most in the known galaxy. You know, he'd just done so many of them and been involved with it. And so I had the opportunity to learn from him, even though I've been operating for many, many years and to really see the stories and to talk to the patients and then and then have an opportunity to analyze the data using some of those public health skills and do some follow-up studies that helped improve care even more and help the communication with the patient so that we could really inform who would get benefit from surgery and who wouldn't that was just a that was a strong feeling and i remember the first time i did one with noel i write about it in the book see one, do one, teach one. But I mean, it's, it's wondrous. You know, the, the maternal fetal medicine surgeons, they expose the uterus, they ultrasound the surface to look for blood vessels to 
when they open and then they open and then all of a sudden they, you know, using what's called external version, they, they kind of push on the uterus. All of a sudden you see this little tiny fetus in the back rolls into view and you're on. It's just a wondrous thing to see. So what was the feeling that you had when you completed your first surgery of this kind? Well, I mean, it was just, some of it was like, if my college friends could see me now, they would never <laughs> believe that this, I just done this. But, uh, but in truth, it was just a wondrous sense of being able to intervene at a time uh, and have a big impact. And, and the fact that we'd progressed to a point medically and scientifically that this could be done was just remarkable to me. Yeah, it's really a, a miracle. Just absolutely. Just, just, it fit right into a miracle to me. It, it wasn't separate. It was all just quite miraculous. The other case I wanted to talk about, or have you talk about rather, was the repair that you did on a, a young man's or young boy's sciatic nerves that had been severed by a previous surgeon in, in a botched attempt to loosen tendons of the hamstring muscles. I had no idea that such a repair was even possible. This, this really sounded like magic to me. Well, I tell you, you know, nerves want to heal. You know, so, you know, we talk about brain and spinal cord being the central nervous system and the nerves being the peripheral nervous system. And so there's kind of several different paths to have an expertise in that area. And I've been fortunate enough at a couple of different centers and then my training at Duke to have just developed an interest in that. But yeah, I remember vividly sitting out, you know, looking outside. I was out in, in the clinic hall back in my previous job at Birmingham and seeing the paper chart and looking at it and being like, huh, bilateral leg pain. Well, that sounds like that ought to be something in the spinal cord, but I don't see any films. I don't understand. Oh, this is going to make the family upset. I'm going to have to order an MRI. What's going on? And then I walked in and I see this boy curled up into a ball. The room is dark, very quiet. And I uh, introduced myself and the family kind of, shh, you know, kind of says, you got to talk quiet. I kind of barely like I bump into a chair, which bumps into the table and just the movement of the table makes this boy kind of holler out in pain. And it's just this overwhelming sense of pain and suffering. And lo and behold, I realized why he never had a spine MRI. It's because he was a soccer player who uh, was found to be a little bit tight on his running. His knees and his legs wouldn't extend all the way. So from that, he was referred to a physical therapist who referred them to a surgeon who uh, talked to them about sectioning the part of the hamstring muscles, tendons, I mean, and that was performed and the patient was casted and was just in a ton of pain when they woke up. And six weeks later, the casts were taken off and there was no movement uh, of the ankles or toes and no sensation below the knees. And so that was many, many hours away from where I practiced in, in a community. And gradually the patient made his way to us. And, um, and there in that clinic, I had this realization that he was in a lot of pain. He, it was probably scar tissue, probably had something to do with the nerves being injured. And we were going to need to explore him in the operating room. So that's what we did. We uh, took him to the operating room, and I was thinking maybe I was going to see some scar tissue, even though in the back of my mind, I know that he woke up in pain. So it probably was, you know, scar takes a little while to form. And I remember dissecting down along the sciatic nerve, down between the deep muscles of the thigh and the back muscles of the thigh, and down into the back behind the knee and finding that big nerve. It's about the size of your thumb. And going down and going down, and then it just stopped in a blob. 
you know, normally it splits into two nerves, the tibial and the peroneal nerve, and that nerve then splits, and they all go to muscles and sensation in the leg. And I was like, well, where is the other end? And so I went down to where I knew it was supposed to be, made an incision, found the nerve, traveled up, and there was just a gap between where the cut had happened and that hamstring was intact. And so, you know, once you kind of get over the, well, my goodness, this actually can happen. We basically harvested other nerves and used them as jump grafts, jump grafts. So we cut out the scar tissue and used them as multiple little jump grafts. And uh, that took many, many hours. What was the word? Jump rafts? Jump. Yeah. Jump graft. Oh, jump graft. Like we use the sural nerve, which I always say is kind of God's gift to the peripheral nerve surgeon because it's a long nerve that only gives a little bit of sensation on the side of the foot. You know, and he had lost that sensation anyway. So we harvested that and, and cut it into segments that were the length of the gap that we had to extend between the nerve edges. And we sewed those in using the microscope and suture that's finer than human hair and um, got them all aligned up. And, you know, by the end, I think it was seven or eight hours by the time we were done. Now, now that's that's the, the sheath that, is, that the nerve is gonna, then going to regenerate into. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So what happens is the, the axons are long processes that come off the, the nucleus and the, the body of the nerve. And then the axon grows in these myelin sheaths that when you cut a nerve, it looks like almost like spaghetti because you can just see like all the different fibers and myelin sheaths are there. So what happens is when you align those graphs up, those axons actually, they actually die and it has to start to regrow again. So it's not like, you know, cutting a cord and rewiring it and plugging it in the wall. It's actually that axon kind of begins the process of regrowing and it gets to those, to that sheath, those myelin sheaths, those microscopic sheaths, and those little axons will grow into the sheaths and then they continue to grow all the way down to the muscle. Right. So it, you, you're not actually connecting the severed nerves. It, it, by analogy, it's like you know somebody gets a haircut and they're very disappointed. And they'll put it back, put it back. And you can't glue the two ends of the hair together. All you could do is let it grow out. Yeah, that's right. That's what happens. You kind of have to you align the nerves up as best as possible. And then you rely on that one millimeter a day of growth to, to, to happen. But it, it takes time. And it always takes longer than you want it to. Yeah. It was about, I think you said it was about six months for this boy. Yeah, and he began to have, uh, all of a sudden, and we did the other side a couple of days later because that same thing had happened on the other side. And, you know, around six months or so, he started having, you know, he could push his foot down and bring his foot up. And, and over time, his function got better. What was remarkable is that he woke up and his pain was better after the surgery. That was probably one of the most effective pain operation. How did the surgery immediately reduce the pain? So I would think that the situation was almost akin to a, to a phantom limb. Well, it is. Actually, I wrote a chapter on stump pain and avulsion pain many years ago when I was a resident. And so stump pain is where there's pain from the nerve that's been cut that can happen in patients that have amputee stumps. And that nerve forms a neuroma. So it almost looks like a, like a drumstick of a chicken wing because once it's cut, those axons grow. They're like, hey, it's cut. Well, that's going to die off. Now we're going to regrow. But it gets to a dead end and it can't go anywhere. So it just forms this painful ball. And so by excising out that neuroma and sewing those grafts in, it that immediately took away that very sensitive generator of pain and it allowed those nerves to grow over time. Right. So it took out the source of, of those nerve endings. Yeah. 
That's right. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Seymour, I just left it in, in the past for a long time. And finally, just in the process of thinking about writing a book, I called up his mom and oh my gosh, you know, she just, she was like, you wouldn't believe how well he's doing. And he's That's incredible. He got a job That's... and he played soccer. And he never wears those braces you gave him because he says he doesn't need them. And, amazing. You know, he's just, we're so proud of him. And that, that was, that was remarkable to catch up with, with them and see how well he's doing. Yeah, the other thing that was special about this case is was the, the uncomfortable part about whether or not to um, lend your expertise to a lawsuit, because of course this previous surgeon had mistaken nerves for tendons. You're right about that. And my my legal uh, my, my lawyer friends tell me that medicine is terrible at policing ourselves, even in a situation like this. I uh, have a hard time pointing out uh, mistakes because. You know, what we do in neurosurgery is there's a lot of opportunity for error, either, I mean, not intentional error, but, but just things that can happen that you don't want to happen. You know, you're close to the motor strip taking out a tumor and they become weak, or there's a blood vessel that gets taken in the midst of taking out a, an AVM and they have a stroke. And, you know, it's hard to throw stones like that. But for me, just seeing the family just reorganize their entire life around this child's debilitating injury and then seeing some of the records where there had been recording of you know by the by the caregivers that performed the operation that were really quite callous that made it more straightforward for me you know to to be engaged well to use the military analogy again um, it's a difference between collateral damage and a deliberate attack on a civilian <laughs> Uh, target. I mean, this is not just an inadvertent uh, damage because it was something was close by. This was really, you know, gross incompetence. It sounds like. Yeah, it was just tough. It was hard to, you know, it's just it's right there. It was right, probably a centimeter away. You don't want to ever, you don't ever want to make a mistake, and you don't ever want to hurt anybody. But you sure as heck, I've had complications. I write about some of them in the book. And a mentor of mine from my first job at UAB, a guy named Wink Fisher, he said, look. You know, complications are going to happen and bad things are going to happen. And your tendency, because it makes you uncomfortable, is to want to move away from that person and that family and not communicate with them because it's just so hard because you're regretful and it feels bad. And the reality of it is you have to move it closer. You know, you have to tell those people, those families, that you're there all the way through and you're there to, you know, help work the problem. And if they don't want it to be with, with us, then we can find somebody who can help with that problem. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to move in closer rather than rather than step back. Well, and it's good to know that the human thing to do is also the best thing for the doctor too, because I think doctors tend to get sued when, they, when the patients feel that the doctor doesn't care about them. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's very right. Malcolm Gladwell, I think in Blink, wrote about a study where they uh, basically took the tone and tenor of conversations that doctors had with patients. So they muted out the words and it was like, versus, and that people could predict whether or not that doctor had a higher proportion of lawsuits by based on the tone and tenor that that person had in how they communicate. So it just, goes back to the humanities point that you brought up at the very beginning, which is the ability to have empathy and to communicate are critically important in our job. Doesn't matter what specialty you're in. 
So let's turn now to talking about your father, and I just want to quote uh, a passage first. The blurring of that time also comes from the fact that in my last year of medical school, on the verge of my journey into this remarkable life to be lived, my father became ill with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, a relentless neurodegenerative disease leading to paralysis and death for which no surgery or intervention is available. I left him in Mississippi, and one year later, the busiest and most intense of my life to date, he was suddenly gone, and I was left with a path stretching out in front of me. For all my uncertainty about how I would spend my life in medicine, it is but one irony that I would devote my career to trying to better understand the anatomical system that had failed my father. I know now that I would come to see him in the patients that I cared for, and also see myself in the family's grief. Really beautiful passage. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate that, Stuart. Thank you. Yeah, my dad um, was an enabler, uh, and I mean that in the most positive sense, as opposed to the negative sense of what an enabler is. And he was able to help people in his military career in the Air National Guard as the commander of the 186th Tactical Recon Unit for many, many years. He was able to do that in his work, the business world and retail, every aspect. He had the ability to to help people that were coming along at whatever level find a good direction and enable them to move forward. And he certainly did that with us as kids. And so the, the number of people over the course of his life who would approach me and say, you know, your dad is a special person or when he got sick or that are at and around his funeral when we're all just kind of reeling at the, at the, at the finality of the loss or, or even afterwards or, or now, now with the book, you know, his, one of his co-pilots reached out uh, recently to say that what memories he had of, of dad and flying with dad and how much fun they had and what a great leader he was and how much courage he showed in the face of this really terrible diagnosis. I mean, ALS is a relentless disease. It fits in the neurodegenerative disorder. And, uh, you know, we've come a little ways, but we've not come long far enough. And between Alzheimer's and dementia of non-Alzheimer's type and Parkinson's and, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, i.e. Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, we need, we need to move further down the line to know, you know, I mean, just think about the decades of, of understanding about cardiac disease and about coronary artery disease and about heart attacks and about how really so much has been fashioned around the business of getting people into the cath lab quickly getting their diagnosis quickly, getting their stents in or getting their, their surgery done quickly. And we can do some of that in the stroke world too, but we are not in that place with these neurodegenerative diseases. And we just, um, we're just in dire need of, of figuring out ways to, to move us from, wow, we were able to diagnose it to now we're able to treat it. And it just hadn't changed since my father died. But it was definitely a challenging time, and he, he had a big impact on me growing up, for sure. Well, it sounds like he was so inspiring in uh, the way he was with people and also the way he dealt with problems with such calm, uh, calmness and, and clarity. And you describe in your book a time when you were flying with him, and suddenly the uh, electrical system goes out completely in the airplane. <laughs> and, you know, just the way, the way you describe it is just he was just totally present and did exactly what needed to be done. And because he wasn't panicking, I guess you weren't panicking. It's that kind of checklist concept. Surgery is a lot more than checklist, but it merely made me think about, 
mean, long before we had checklists in the operating room, I would walk in and talk to the team about, okay, I need a knife, I need a monopolar, I need a retractor, I need a drill, I need bone wax, I need a knife to open the dura, I need the such and such retractor and the microscope and the ultrasonic aspirator. And, the, you know, I, I would always kind of talk through with my teams about what we needed. And, you know, medicine is, and surgery in particular has, has kind of developed this checklist from a safety standpoint, but I totally get it because it helps me think through things. And I learned that oftentimes sitting in the right seat next to him in a Cessna or a Aztec or whatever plane that he was flying that he had taught me how to fly as a kid. And that, that time when we had total electrical failure, you know, 45 minutes south of Cuba was, you know, that was no exception. I mean, we, we lost it all except for our props. And, you know, basically it was just, watching him work the problem and him needing me to fly while he helped figure out how to bounce a signal off a handheld radio off to an American Airlines to get our position to then allow us to find this needle in a haystack in uh, the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean Ocean. It was, it was an amazing experience to be a part of, for sure. Let me just quote one other passage relating to this. Um, we would not grow older as father and son together, it would forever be as it was at his death with me as a proto-adult just at the edge of understanding the mysteries of life and his choices that were all beginning to unveil themselves to me as my own perspective changed. At that point, all I knew was the anger at my inability to change the future rushing at us. It would be much later in my own life when I would feel near desperate need of, of his wisdom, fumbling my own way through my life and work challenges as I sought out other sources recreating over and over that relationship halted in time, only to be left again with the emptiness and anger over his absence. There's probably no good time to lose one's parent, but this, this particular poignancy, I think, of losing a parent as you're entering adult life. And of course, being in residency training for so many years, I mean, that sort of delays a kind of feeling of adolescence, I imagine. You're not quite all the way there yet. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're still running around as residents, not getting any sleep at the age of 30. <laughs> right. Very prolonged adolescence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very prolonged adolescence. And you're on loans and piecing it together. And so, yeah, and, and you know, work allowed me to bury my grief in it before and bury it after. And I, um, I definitely, uh, you read a passage before, like I did. I saw my dad in the patients I cared for and I saw myself and their families. But but I tell you, Stuart, it's 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 taken me some time, you know, to process it and come to terms with it. You know, you mentioned that I wrote a lot more about my dad than my mom in this book. And my mom passed away about six, six and a half, seven years ago. And, you know, I'm still wrapping my brain around what her relationship and the importance of her influence on me was. And so, you know, maybe in another 20 years, I'll have another one. Another another book, right? <laughs> she had a tremendous influence on me in terms of, I think, uh, spirituality and and then, and then the importance of helping other people. My, my dad in problem solving and supporting other people too. That was definitely a common theme for the two of them. Was in whatever it was that I went into, it needed to be something that helped others. That was an important theme in our home. So before we leave the topic of grief, I, I wanted to just mention another part of your book, not, not relating to your father, but you were in training and you remember you're attending neurosurgeon Herb Fuchs when he had to tell a mother 
that her 12-year-old daughter had been diagnosed with diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, DIPG, which is really a death sentence. And as you describe it in your book, it was a formative experience for you to observe your uh, older colleague or, or more experienced colleague with his head in his hands, just despairing. Many times, um, a little background on that is that when, when we see patients, when we see children with brain tumors, it's often because they're presenting to the emergency room, either with a severe headache due to blockage of spinal fluid or a seizure. Almost 100% of the time, the new patients will, will come to the emergency room with a brain tumor uh, when it's a pediatric patient. But sometimes different types of tumors can just be referred in. And this particular situation was surprising that the patient had had um, some blurry vision, double vision that had led to an MRI scan and, and they were they were referred to Herb's, to Herb's clinic. And uh, I remember him looking at the films and saying, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a DIPG. I mean, this is terrible. Have they seen anybody? Am I the first person there? And he had this realization that he was gonna be the very first person that had to break this news to the mother and to the family. And so I remember walking in and, you know, there I was as a junior resident and the girl was a little bit wide based with her gait because she was a little bit unsteady and she had double vision. One of her eyes wouldn't go all the way out and, you know, it matched what her scan showed. And a little while after the examination, her asked me if I would um, take the girl out and let the nurses kind of give her something to color and then uh, and come back. And so I remember looking back as I walked out to see her, you know, the door closing and Herb was kind of looking down to kind of gather himself. And, you know, Herb is this super tall pilot himself, kind of a guy who kind of, you know, well, where's the good Dr. Wellens, you know, talking about my wife, you know, kind of always saying that joke over and over again, even though I've not been a resident for 20 years. And, but man, do I remember walking back in that room and, and seeing that woman she held her by the lapels and she was shaking him saying, but you don't understand. She's supposed to be a Supreme court justice. That's what she wants to be. And Herb just put his arms around her. He just, he just hugged her. What else can you do? And I just, I watched it. And I, I just, I remember her finally stepping away and getting herself together and Herb too. And, and just kind of facing headlong into what the future held for them, which was not easy. So I, I think the words was, you know, something like we have to be cognizant of the, uh, you know, of the grief that we unleash upon our patients by this information that we give them. I just thought that was such a moment of grace and such a time of great grief and sorrow that I've never really wanted to let that moment in my brain go. And I always wanted to feel like that I had that degree of, um, of compassion. And, and, and being present. And being present. Yeah. yeah. Well, moving to a slightly less heavy subject. <laughs> um, another dimension of your book, which is um, not as prominent, but I thought still significant, is, is the clear message in your book that women and minorities are fully capable of doing the work that you do. Uh, you make explicit mention of female nurses and neurosurgery residents on your team, and you make special mention of your mentor, Tim George. So tell us about the African-American eighth grader who interviewed you for his school's career day. Yeah, it was, it was right here in the office. Uh, and uh, I'll show you the picture, but so he's sitting, he, he's there talking to me about career day and he's asking questions and he's this 
African American kid. He's got glasses on. And he's dressed up. His button. He's got his short sleeve, but he's buttoned all the way up. To us, and he's asking these questions, and he's carefully writing it down. And finally, he, we're done. I can see in his notebook. He's asked the last question, and he finally sits back in his chair and he takes his glasses off. Now, for real, Doctor J, like, <laughs> are there any black pediatric neurosurgeons out there? And I don't know if you can see it, Stuart, but right there, right there is me operating with Tim George. And I said, oh, wow. and I turned him around. I said, well, actually, right there, that's my mentor and friend, Tim George. He taught me how to be a pediatric brain surgeon. And I mean, his mouth dropped and his mom was there and she teared up and she said, you know, baby, you can be anything you want to be. And it was just the... It was just the neatest moment. And, you know, Tim, after his time at Duke, he went to Austin, Texas to help be a part of the new Dell Medical School there. And, and he just, he won awards for his work with healthcare disparity and with medical students with diverse backgrounds. He just, that was his life's calling. And right kind of before the pandemic was starting to hit, he, he passed away uh, early at an early age. And we all, you know, everybody from all corners, you know, converged upon Austin, Texas. And I ended up writing a piece about what Tim meant to me. And uh, that next uh, January, I was at a national meeting of all the pediatric neurosurgeons in North America. It was about 250 of us, I mentioned. And, and they asked me to read that. Uh, and so I, I read it uh, to all of my colleagues. And I think it just really resonated with everybody. And that ultimately is what became the chapter called Bucket Line, where I talk a lot about how we're handed from one person to the next often. And, you know, I realized that in my life, I had a lot of hands moving me forward. And one of the things that I didn't really know about Tim until I was at his memorial service was that he didn't have as many hands. You know, he used to joke with me about being from the Bronx and I was from Mississippi and he would he would make fun of my accent. I'll see I'm a, I'm a Southern neurosurgeon, country neurosurgeon, trying to get the day's work done. I say, I say, he sounded like Foghorn Leghorn. But really, he kind of willed himself into Columbia and willed himself into NYU and willed himself into a prestigious fellowship at uh, Chicago Memorial Hospital for Children. And, and I was just so incredibly impressed by his life and influence. I have this vivid memory. Uh, you know, I took out my first pediatric brain tumor with Tim. And I also used to do research with him. And sometime late nights or when I was in the, in the, on my lab year or on the weekends, I would sit at his desk. He'd give me a key to his office and I would work on a database on his computer. And one day, one of the doors was kind of open on his desk. And I remember, well, I better fix that. I opened the door and opened it to close it, which means I was rooting around. And all of a sudden, just this avalanche of paper and cards fell down on my desk. And it was all cards and drawings from families saying thank you for what he had done for their child as a pediatric neurosurgeon. Rainbows, drawings of Tim holding a child's hand, little rainbows in the background. It was just, it was remarkable to see. And uh, he just had a tremendous influence on me. Yeah, it sounds like he was really the one of the most important. And when you speak about the cards and the letters, I mean, that sounds like one of the fringe benefits of the very difficult work that you do is that in addition to the short-term follow-up, you get long-term follow-up because they contact you to let you know how they're doing, especially when things go well, I would think. Yeah, that's um, a really special part of the field is 
getting to see the children grow, always say that, that time is the fourth dimension of anatomy. And the anatomy of uh, the relationships are similar, but the anatomy of a newborn is quite different than the anatomy of an 18-year-old. And so oftentimes our follow-up is over a longer period of time. And so it is really rewarding psychologically to see these people move into their life and form family units and have kids or hold jobs or play sports or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, Providence has in store for them. But I just remember that was a real moment for me when I realized what kind of impact you could potentially have on people at really incredibly powerful and important moments in their lives. Well, speaking of time, I want to read another passage of your book relating to time. This is toward the end of your book. Uh, Somehow all the goodness and grace now interwoven over the years travels back to the past, the past where the earliest version of your story together is playing out. With all the unfolding intensity and urgency that emergency pediatric neurosurgery can have. And I recognize that this next part may not be typical pediatric neurosurgeon thinking, but I suspect that it is, that goodness and grace somehow reveal themselves to me right in that moment when I know the child must have the surgery to survive and that it is up to me to do it. I can see just the haziest version of a life to be lived, the relief in the parent's eyes during recovery, the joy of the later years now reattained, and finally the discharge from clinic into the rest of life. I cannot explain it any better than that, I know it sounds nonsensical, the future influencing the past, but in my own mind, that cycle exists, pushing me forward into the otherwise unknown. It's true. can feel that. I really, honest to goodness, can. Uh, I, I write about that in, in rubber bands, too. I, I can remember Cheyenne's mom, this real sense of, um, that was the patient in rubber bands, and I won't give away the story, but this real sense of like, what's going to happen? Like, you know, like, okay, you have a plan, but there's a lot of anxiety that comes along with, you've got to take my child to the OR emergently or they will die. Right. I mean, no kidding. That's a lot of anxiety, but, but having a couple of decades under the belt, having great people that I worked with, you can have this kind of sense of like, we're going to be able to bring her back to you and there's going to be a future here. And that, that does affect me in that moment. Like I, I know that we can impact here. I feel that we can have a really substantial positive impact here. Right, and after 20 years in the field, you know from the scans what you're gonna probably find and you're able to give some reassurance to the parents even before you go in, it yep. sounds like. Yep, Which That's is right. a remar- remarkable thing rather than saying, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully we'll see what happens those times are few and far between it's they're not they're not never but um but thankfully they're few and far between yeah and certainly your your book recounts mostly success stories as it should but i was really impressed that you also included some of the failures uh which is part of life and um it takes a lot of courage i think to face face those uh and, and i'm not saying they're personal failures of course but just that things didn't work out the way you would you had hoped and certainly not the way the parents had hoped and that's the way it, it turns out sometimes yeah that's the way it turns out sometimes there's this one part that if it's okay i'll read and it's okay people can die kids can die you can do or not do you can pray or not pray you can work past the edge of exhaustion but they still die death becomes a part of your daily rhythm one may come inured to it but i've yet to find a way to rid myself of it completely 
I desperately want it gone. And yet, for some odd reason, I desperately want to never let it go. Without it, there is no final line to hold. Without it to struggle against, we become less of who we think we are. So it's definitely part of what we process on a daily basis. Well, let me read one more passage. It's not for me to have the last word because of your, your words, right? <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the last paragraphs of, of your book, I think. Medicine is full of stories, dramatic stories. Hang around a hospital long enough and you will see that these stories need no embellishment. And in neurosurgery, these stories tend to be even more dramatic. They are often the stories at the junction of life and death, of suffering and of joy, of profound spiritual crisis and just answered prayers. It is impossible to keep from being drawn into these elemental moments when life feels at its most precious and meaningful. Living in this space tends to heighten everything. The embrace of loved ones lasts just a bit longer than before. The breaths in and out while on a hike in nature are a touch deeper. The gratitude for safety and health comes closer to the surface now. Beautiful, beautifully um, said, you know, just what the good part of, of living this kind of, uh, this kind of life is. Just a kind of richness and appreciation that just is ever, ever flowing. It is. It is. It is. Um, it's a remarkable life lived, and I, I'm grateful for it. Even though the challenges are there and the intensity is there, um, the opportunity to work with a team of people who intercede and, and can have this fundamental impact on people is just, uh, I feel very blessed. Uh, grateful to have the opportunity to do it. Well, Jay Wellens, pediatric neurosurgery professor at Vanderbilt and, and author of All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients and their stories of grace and resilience. It was really an honor and a pleasure to have you on Delving In. Well, thank you, Stuart. I really am honored to, uh, to be on it. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me and thank you for this, this great conversation. You know, I'm, I have gained insight and taken a few notes, I might add, discussion. So thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.